Today, we speak to John Fagg from Adina, an ed tech startup community. John is passionate about pioneering change in how education is provided and consumed using the power of technology. John provides valuable insight in having a full-time job and growing a side hustle. A great listener for you. Welcome to Year One, hosted by me, Dio Klopis, and my good friend, Satish Bala. On Year One, we speak to early stage founders, business owners, and entrepreneurs about the highs and lows of the early years, the challenges and rewards, and everything else in between. So without any further ado, let's get into this week's conversation. What was that inspiration or what was that moment or what happened that made you decide that you want to start something on the side? Yeah. It's the excitement of the unknown and the dynamic versus the day-to-day grind. So I do work full-time at a school, keeping track of the technology, making sure it runs, and also investigating new products for teachers. That has a certain structure to it and a certain repetitiveness to it. School years go from year to year. We have a start of the school year. We have certain things that happen during the school year, and then the school year ends. We have enrollment every year. We have report cards every year. And so there's a certain cyclicality or sameness to the school years. And every day is challenging in its own. But at some point, you want to get jazzed up about certain other things. So for me, it was seeing opportunities in the ed tech space where teachers were talking about problems they had, but there wasn't a product available in the marketplace. And so... That's exciting to me where I put my product hat on and I have a background in software development and say, okay, if I were running a company, what would I do to fill this market need? That's great. Is it, it's not, sorry, sorry. Is it fair to say then that it was both a market need and a passion for what you're actually doing within the ed space? Yeah, I think you'll find people in technology particularly in schools, are service providers. A good day is when we help a lot of people solve their problems or help them fix a problem they had or help them with a technical glitch or help a student in that case too. So we thrive on being a doctor, being a technology doctor. And so if you take that to the next level and say, okay, aside from putting these band-aids on every day, is there something I can do structurally or more holistically that will help lots of teachers across lots of schools. I like that. Take us back a little bit because you've got a background in finance and you've also now shared a little bit about software development. Talk to us a little bit about your background. Where does finance and software development and things that you learn along the way? Yeah, so I originally started out in market research and finance at a school. So I formed a background in computer science and went into the business aspect of technology and that was finance being an analyst. And love that quite a bit. That, that uh, analysis was for a market research firm and also for a small investment firm. I liked to leverage two domains if possible. And that was my business background and my software development background. So that's where I started out. From there, I migrated to the investment banker on Wall Street for some of the larger investment banking firms, which was high income, but low job satisfaction. And so as My kids got to be a certain age. I exited that industry. And then again, trying to leverage two domains, went into education, which leverages at that point, my desire to be a teacher and my technical background, eventually with another master's degree in education. And so now I sit at the precipice of all three, (laughs) education 
and technology, and it's been great. No, I love that. In one of the blogs that I read where you talked about reorganizing education or ed tech, the analogy you used I thought was brilliant is comparing it to a Broadway play that once it's set and is launched for the season, there's not a lot of changes that happen until the season runs its course, which is similar to how a lot of schools operate. There's a period of tech innovation and budgeting. Once that is done for the rest of the term, it's get the kids to the end of the season and graduate, meet the expectations. Yet with COVID, the amount of entrepreneurships that are coming into this space, trying to solve problems in education or opportunities in education, myself included, with Schoolio, the innovation gaps seem so small compared to the challenges that we can take on. I would love for you to share what you're seeing on the inside versus what you're supporting the founders all who are trying to get in. Yeah, so I think that's an apt analogy. I think your school, as you correctly indicated, is a people-intensive endeavor like a Broadway play and that there's a lot of practice and choreography of which uh, that lends itself to somewhat of a rigid structure, if you will. So schools are rigid structures. And so it needs that uh, your ability to innovate needs to be very laser focused and timely, almost serendipitous in some respects. And so that to me is somewhat frustrating because it means the current generation of edtech tools are fairly narrowly focused and are productive, but don't help teachers or students to the degree they could. And so to use your play analogy, do you want to swap out the, the cast? make minor tweaks to the cast, bring an understudy up. Do you want to change the, uh, the stage background and the stage design? Or do you want to open a whole new show? And so I think the current generation is very much of an incremental approach, but because of the structure of the school or the play, I think the next generation of tools should be more audacious and think about opening a new play and really doing things differently. That's what I signed up for. Look, we are trying to reimagine how education is being delivered and our approaches. It's got to move from being a silo of classrooms and kitchens and tutors to a community. The child learns through multiple touch points, yet the multiple touch points are not connected. And that's the problem we're hoping to solve with a connected ecosystem. And when I look at the different models out there, folks that have been in the world of education for let's say the last 10 years, it's the same blueprint answer. You got to target B2B. You got to get in right before back to school or the business is dead. If school boards don't buy you. And what I'm curious is when you're mentoring founders coming into your incubator accelerator programs, I'm sure all of them coming in with, we need 10% of every school possible with a license agreement. And that's our solution. We're going to go. And the revenue model is always the same. What kind of characteristics do you look for when you're looking at a founder with an idea or an idea that could potentially be audacious? The first thing is I tell people the harsh truth about the tech market, which is it is like threading a needle. There's a lot of cross currents and challenges and you articulated them. You have the teachers who want something who aren't always ability, don't have the ability to articulate what, at least from a product standpoint. And they don't have the money. And then you have the, uh, the top-down folks who make decisions who are often disconnected from the teachers or in worst cases, uh, warring with them and have conflicting goals and objectives. And so you try to sell into that market and it's a real mess. People also have a misnomer that teachers are teachers. 
if you were to look at and build teacher personas, you probably have 50 to 100 of them. So there is no such thing as a teacher. There are only different types of teachers in different types of schools. So targeting people, aside from the fact they only have a little bit of money to spend, because it's really hard to find those folks to get them to help you with product development and then maybe convert them to be paying customers. So it's a real mess. And so oftentimes, if companies come in with a product that's too heavy, that's immediately going to turn off teachers. The teachers are people and have the same 30 second like or dislike of a new product that you would have if you were buying a consumer product. And so you really need to engage them quickly. And so I counsel them to say, don't require a teacher to onboard the product and use it and learn it and bring it to the classroom because that's really high stakes and it's labor intensive. My counsel is have something on your website that can demonstrate the value of your product in a different form. Have them go there and be able to input a little bit of information and see the value you add that you have, which by the way, in these days should be saving teachers time. Very few ed tech products, the first generation of products save teachers time. They are more foundational doing something digitally that teachers did in an analog mode previously. Teachers are leaving the professions in droves because they're exhausted, accentuated by the pandemic. And so they are crying out for tools that save them time and effort, of which there are very few these days. Or if they do, they're a really heavy lift and the onboarding for teachers is just too much. They get through the school year, they have a couple breaks, they get to the summer, and very few teachers are looking to dive in further to more school work over the summer. They frankly just need to recharge their batteries and get ready for the fall. And that just lends itself to, or speaks to rather, the threading the needle analogy I made. It's just, it's hard to find people who have money and teachers who are wealthy at the same time during the school year. And uh, so that just makes it extra challenging. I mentioned the disparate types of teachers. Now you have disparate types of schools with different types of rally points, ebbs and flows during the school year, and a different opportunity set for teachers who may or may not want to spend time looking at products. And uh, you have just a really challenging way to align all that to get your product in front of enough teachers to make a viable business. And I think this is a brilliant segue into. Could you explain to our listeners what the dealer does? How does it actually help the tech sector and the teachers, et cetera? You're saying, you know? Yeah. Sure. So again, we're pairing up industry experts and founders who have founded more than one company with first-time founders. And we're helping them craft product trajectories. We're helping them craft go-to-market strategies. We're helping them tweak their messaging and we're helping them decide who to go after. Do you want to go after the teachers, which has its own challenges, or do you want to go after the administrators, which has significant lead time? It takes two to three years to get on an approved list in a state. So you need to, and you have to be viable. So it's chicken and egg, right? You're not going to get on the approved list if you're a company that doesn't meet the minimum requirements and or the approved list already has other products on it, rightly or wrongly, that look like your product. The ed tech folks aren't always experts in every product segment. They may say, your product looks like another couple we have, so 
case closed, you're off the list. It's a really challenging way to go. And I think you're seeing a mix of B2B, B2C, where companies are going after both. And in some cases, they're going after parents. I actually believe that uh, parents could be a good untapped market because they are more approachable and findable than teachers and could, if you've got enough parents in a community to buy your product, you actually could create demand in the school system if you had some additional value added that the school could use that leverages all the individual students who are already using a product, let's say. So teach that it's just confirmation that what you're doing is the right approach. Yeah. Brilliant. Because <laughs> you just basically uh, affirmed our game plan. We in this building this community with this three-pong approach I talked about in our school reimagination. The starting point was the parents, the ones that have never been part of the process for us. And so we started the company supporting homeschooling parents, which at the height of the pandemic included every parent. And as we now shift into post-COVID, the homeschooling base is growing. Parents that have now seen the transparency they can get into what's happening in classrooms are continuing to use our product for after-school support or just planning so they know what's coming down the pipeline. And in doing so, we're starting to create noise with the teachers that, hey, there's a tool that's organized curriculum for me. How can I tap into that? And we're hoping that noise as it bubbles, it'll start to connect the dots between parents and teachers and school boards. We have a long way to go, man, but I love the fact that you brought that point up. Well, I'll phrase it a different way. I violently agree, but my thinking has evolved over the past 15 years that have been education. The markets as they look today were defined by the institutions. And then the ed tech vendors created their own market segments on top of those two larger markets. But I actually think that targeting particular market segments in a lot of cases doesn't make a lot of sense. So for example, I think when I talk with companies, I try to stretch their view holistically to say, let's just talk about learning in general. Let's talk about the brain research that exists and the pedagogical best practices that exist. And let's just talk about your product being an efficient learning tool of some sort. And then you can then point those and map them to particular markets, homeschool, independent schools, public schools, higher education, corporate workforces. And so I think my thinking has refined to say, well, we have it as a problem because learning is different across those different locations. And it is a little bit because of age appropriateness, but at the same time, it's not all that different. And I think we do ourselves a disservice by targeting those niche markets, even though they're big markets, because you think cradle to grave, right? No product does a student ever use more than a few years. So you think about K through 12 using X number of products. Then you think about higher education that'll use different products for four or eight or 10 years if you go to grad school and so forth. And then they're going and starting a job and use completely different tools. In terms of really building deep skills, the hodgepodge of tools is not really helpful. And now I don't think there's one tool that could stay in all those areas, but I think we would be better off if we thought about learning as a generalized endeavor and that those particular locations are different market segments. And I'd probably throw remote learning in there too, is that's quite a disruptive force. And I think my thinking now is how to learn best. 
What's an efficient learning path for my learning disposition and my learning goal? What's the best content to use? What are the best assessments to use? And I think machine learning, which I've been purposely not saying up till now, does play a role in that as a way to really optimize that. And I think there's an efficiency, a time efficiency in learning that we're not paying attention to. Because if I can learn something in six hours instead of 10 hours, I can take those other four hours off or I can go deeper or I can go to another subject. And so I think just having a large basket of curriculum that I need to learn is not great. I think it should be, uh, I should be able to personalize that a little bit and tweak it a little bit for my own interest levels. But that also requires an efficiency where what's right for me may not be right for you guys. And so I think the notion of learning efficiency comes into play and that's not talked about a lot, but I get really excited because to me, that's the real benefit of personalized learning meets machine learning, right? It is you can get a concept by reading three books, but I only had to read two and you got to the same level of understanding that I did, but I needed one less book. And then the reverse is true in another subject where I need to see the, the problem modeled three ways because I just don't quite get it, but you saw it once and you're off to the races. That, John, that is so, that really, that's the crux. Learning is so important and how we learn and things like that is crucial for our advancement in both our careers and personal life, etc. But if I just go back now to this podcast, so this podcast is talking to new founders and what I would like to know, so you are a highly educated person. You've got a lot of experience within the sector. You've probably got a massive network as well within the sector. To what extent has that benefited you with setting up your business? And what challenges, two part questions, are, to what extent has it benefited you? But also, even with all of that, what were some of the challenges that you actually encountered while setting up this business? The benefit of a large network is, from my perspective, that you can identify a problem and understand it well. But, and this is where a lot of companies fall down, understand adjacent problems, right? So. Even if you're solving one problem, small companies should be laser focused on one particular problem, but that's not to say you shouldn't have a product trajectory that includes adjacent products. And I would say that in EdTech, that's a shortcoming right now. They solve a problem for a particular group of teachers, but that problem is only one very minor portion of a teacher's overall workflow and routine for the day or the week or the year. So. One is research a problem in depthly, but keep your eyes horizontally to related problems where you could leverage either the R and D you do or the marketing message. So that's a benefit of a large market. The challenge is that you can have what I just said and still find it really challenging to develop a go-to-market strategy because your initial focus purposely focuses you on a particular problem and you're getting feedback from a group of customers. And that's good because it means there's enough of a market for your product where you can at least find X number of people to be interested and then convert them to customers. So that's a good thing. On the other hand, the challenge is that they guide you into a really narrow niche. And then as you go for your 10,000 customer, you realize that there are only 5,000 customers which is not terrible, but 
it's the need to be innovative and look around holistically at the problem. And there's a lot of research on product development in this area that says you can't just listen to your customers because like the iPhone, nobody knew they needed it until they had it. You couldn't go and say, hey, I'm going to make this random device with these 20 things and it's going to be extensible. And people go, oh, that's great. Because there have been many products to fail using the Swiss Army knife metaphor, which is what the iPhone is. But because of the way it came about, it was perfect. And so you have to balance listening to your customers and completely ignoring. I love that. And I've been a serial founder by accident coming out of university. I didn't realize a computer engineering degree has variations based on GPA. I was like, wait, I didn't know GPA matters. I've got the same degree as the guy beside me. So let me try something different. But when I look at the next batch of students and the next batch of founders, and I love the fact that you're in the middle of both in school and what you do with the Dino, their approach to building businesses, or let's take students, for example, their understanding of what education means to them, what core curriculum means, or the audacity to come up with the next iPhone that none of us even think we need. What are you seeing in the student population? What attitude, what aspirations, what skill sets are fundamentally different than how we maybe all grew up looking at education as an opportunity? I'd say two ways, and I can use my kids who are in their mid to late 20s as a proxy for this. Kids today need a cause. They're very mission-oriented, and what they do needs to jive with their internal social compass. They're incredibly distracted and have a way more opportunities to get distracted. And so whatever you do needs to be really engaging. And to go to the EdTech product area, you're not competing with just other EdTech products. You're competing with things the teacher does, and you're competing at home with video games and TV and streaming services and social media, because if you're only capturing five minutes a week of a student, you're about to be thrown out. Even if you're like capturing one hour a day, that might not be enough to be installed in a school long-term. So you need to compete for engagement, which means you need to make it fun and interactive as possible. So students are requiring more interest in products. Doesn't have to be a game. You don't have to gamify your product, but you have to go in and acknowledge that learning is only one aspect of a youth today. And you need to compete against everything else that's going on in their life. The other thing is I'd say informal learning. Uh, and this is true of older folks too, not just this young generation, but you need to respect the fact that they have things they want to check out and not everything is formed. They, as a, okay, I can go backwards. So these additional sort of ideas and passions of kids today will lead to side hustles when they get older. I don't know what to call a side hustle for a young person other than an inquiry or a quest, but you need to acknowledge the fact that they need to have different types of learning because they may only want to spend a weekend learning about something. It's not going to be their major and they're not going to get a job doing it, but they have a lot of questions and you need to have a learning light type of ability to help them find out information. And to be honest today, there really isn't any. 
you can go online and use a search engine, but that's not leveled for your age. <laughs> you have no idea what the source of it is. It's not summarized easily. There's no questions generated. There's no learning activities. Like to me, the learning of the future is a search engine that is learning aware. It knows learning activities and it knows content and it can put it all together to you and say, I have an hour for a passion project as a fourth grader. And I'm curious about volcanoes. Give me what I need for an hour to engage me such that my teacher will also say, that was a good use of your time, John. That is literally what I did with Shaquille, my son. He's in grade three and we had to do a report on volcanoes. And somehow he got into a fun little rabbit hole in the YouTube world of just volcanoes and shows and eruptions and visuals. And he put together this really cool Google Slides of just stuff that interested him. And we didn't have to do anything other than beside him just to make sure the content was clean and nothing was weird keywords coming up. But that interest for that 35, 40 minutes, man, it was beautiful to see. And I'm noticing that with both of my kids where they will go all in for a certain amount of time on something that they're really interested in and then they might never touch it again. But for those three days, that's all they do. That's the way people learn. I do the same thing, right? So I go deep into something and I decide if I'm going to do more of it. And that might lead to an online course or going to the Kaggle site to look at some machine learning models. But that's really what I want people to get. And your son was fortunate that you had some instructional design capabilities to maybe craft raw content into a little bit more of a learning journey for him. But the average person can't do that. The average person doesn't know how to do that. And so I also think there's an opportunity to maybe do things collaboratively. The kids learn and love to learn collaboratively and social learning is a real foundation. It's just gotten squeezed out of schools because it's too hard to accomplish for most teachers. It's too hard to do because it's too messy relative direct to direct instruction. Collaborating on something. Hey, I want to learn about volcanoes. I'm a fourth grader. I'm going to spend the next hour doing it. Anybody on board? The ability to really take remote learning to the next level, I think is great. And that would also, by the way, lessen a little bit of teacher exhaustion because there'd be a little more productive learning done outside of school. And maybe that creeps into school. Maybe the teacher could trust the learning journey your son's on as being academically rigorous enough to spend an hour or two on a Friday. Or maybe you do a flex day and students can do whatever they want all day long and the teacher didn't have to design 30 different lesson plans. So John, you started off, we know that you're in full-time employment as well. So I think my question now is, how do you balance or find the time or manage this split focus? It's a good question. It's not easy, right? Because I'm effectively doubling up in some regards, but I have the luxury of being a nester, which means my kids are on their own. And so I do have some spare time, which other people may pick up golf. And I've chosen to plow that spare time back into side gigs because that's what interests me. And so it is challenging for people who might have other family responsibilities or might not have as much flexibility at work. So it's challenging. I also use a variety of software to keep me organized and help me moving ahead. Uh, I use about six different products. <laughs> and so 
doing things along those lines is not, it's not easy. It takes active management because my, my day job is highly structured. I have people working for me. I have people who are requiring things of me. I'm a service provider. So my day is uh, structured already based on me responding to people and working on long-term projects. So to tap into an unstructured world, like helping founders, there couldn't be anything more unstructured. They're literally doing multiple jobs and have, in some cases, no idea what they're doing. So, and so for me to stay organized and add value to them and be respectful of my time and theirs, you need a lot of tools such that you stay organized. And it's almost like being a consultant, making sure that you're using your time wisely, following up with people. If they've asked you to do something and you're doing it, either say you're not going to do it or help them out in some regards. And I want to follow it up. I've got two quick questions for you. So the first question is, do you see this always being a side gig for you? Probably not. I guess my feeling is I've always been opportunistic with both with, with the places I've worked and the industries and stayed in an industry until it didn't feel right or stayed at a particular job until it didn't feel right. I suspect if I could find something that energizes me and I think has a great probability to succeed, I have a whole whiteboard of ideas, but as I stress test them, given that ed tech's so challenging, they all still have a fairly low chance of success, even though I think some are, as any founder does, thinks their idea is going to change the world. So I'm waiting to line up an idea with like-minded people so we can leverage what we do. I think finding a, a tribe and people who share some of my wacky ideas is an important motivator so that you gain some leverage. So you get one plus one is three or four. I love that. We should actually talk to you about this network that we want to start that shares ideas, but it's <laughs> a side conversation. I listen to a lot of podcasts and I watch things like Dragon's Den and things like that. And it's quite interesting. Investors turn around and they say they're only willing to invest in people who are 100% committed to their cause. If like you've got split responsibility, you're not an investable or viable option. What are your, given that you are sitting in both camps, you've got both a full-time job and you've got your side gig. What are your thoughts as far as that is concerned? I think that's a particular investment criteria, right? I can see investors wanting a founder to live, eat, and breathe the company. And when they wake up in the middle of the night, think more about that company. And I think that has a lot of merits for sure. But I also think that hurts your view of the chessboard. And I'll give you an example. Name one ed tech company startup. Actually, forget, leave any ed tech <laughs> with the exception of the biggest public companies that have partnered with any other company. There are companies that are working on relatively similar products and they don't think to talk, compare notes, think where they're all going to go. They're just a bunch of cars like Mario Kart smashing down the road into guardrails, hoping that they're the one who survives. Yes, I think passion and focus is really important, but I think taken to an extreme, it can be a detriment. I love that. I love that. Last question. Dion, let's have another one. Not all of them. So listen, we thank you for your time. And on, on closing up, 
today. And we'll be talking about EdTech and your role and seeing what's happened with your time in the space, what's coming down the pipeline. You have the choice of how you want to answer this question. You can either tell us about a startup in your community that is getting you excited because you're seeing what they're doing and you're excited about their potential. We'd love to know who's got you excited. Or you've got a, I wish somebody's doing this because this is a big enough problem that nobody's solving. Okay. Okay. So I'll start with a product category and then I'll mention two companies. So in the area of learning, I mentioned a next generation search engine that kicks out learning adventures that are age appropriate and time constrained instead of just content from the web. A lesson plan search engine that's willing to give you an hour of a passion project, not just a two week long investigation of biomes of the world. So the ability for somebody who's inquisitive of which most people are to fulfill their intellectual curiosity, right? So lesson plan search engine that takes into account the way you like to learn and learns about you over time maybe pairs you up with other people for some motivation and some support and can provide you resources when you have a problem that you can't solve or when you hit a, when you hit a stag because you might be young and not know how to work around a problem. Older people and higher education, they're going to work and do whatever they need to solve the problem or finish the quest. Younger folks, not so much. So that would be an overall technology. As far as products I've seen, there's a product called Merlin, Merlin Mind that seems interesting. It's hardware based and it's supposedly a teacher's assistant that allows them to make requests and do things. It's almost like having a computer in the corner, but you give me a voice command. So it's very education, teacher savvy instead of being over there typing things. So it's really a, a layer around what teachers could already be doing. So it's an interface layer. I think that has a lot of merit. And then you look at another company that also is putting a layer around what teachers do called Magic Educator that is looking at putting a layer of what teachers want and creating dynamic lesson plans. That's a big one, dynamic lesson plans. That's amazing. We'll, uh, we'll have to go Google and check those guys out. Listen, John, thank you for your time and joining us today. I found this session extremely useful, not just from an entrepreneurship perspective and your journey, but also all of the insights you have on education. So thank you for joining us today. You bet. Thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Thanks, John. Nice to meet you. Cheers. That's the cut for the guys. Thanks, man. Uh, I appreciate you jumping in and look, I'm excited for the stuff you talk about. And I'm even more excited to, to learn more about the Dino program. And I don't know if Canadians can qualify or not I, as a first time EdTech founder, I'm looking for a tribe that I can lean into and vice versa. I've got 25 years of three startups and in, in technology and exits that I can share if you need extra mentors or anything like that. But if I could help, I'm happy to help. Same thing with Dion. Yeah. I just real briefly looked at your website. I, I think again, a great example of learning being too segmented, right? Homeschooling has great resources, but you would be hard pressed to find a teacher who would use them because it's all the teacher. I'm the professional and I don't want to use these things. It's it. I think there's a lot of good homes and I think that's where the innovation could be too. I think there's pairing up people with tutoring services and 
the lesson plan thing is perfectly made. You're a mom who is, has an expertise in one domain and you're a smart woman, but these other ones, you don't know. I know teachers who can't create a lesson plan, don't have the pedagogical knowledge of what I, what activity should I pair with this article to read? As you get this learning goal, they have no idea. So lesson planning, that was a designer. Lesson planning is not trivial. And so I think if it were a roadmap, you know, homeschoolers could use it and then teachers could take it and tweak it. And then they would feel like it's theirs. I think that's the ownership thing is a big stumbling block for teachers. That's the, the, the harsh truth I realized when we went down this path that we tried to hire teachers. Version out of the box was aligning with Canadian expectations. And in Canada, every province uses 90% of the same Canadian expectations. So we tried to hire teachers to do lesson planning. And I realized so many of them don't want to do lesson planning or lesson design. And so we had to go find small group of instructional designers that had a teaching background. And similar to your point, homeschoolers, they have to go look for resources that are either not secular or doesn't, are not verified. And so when we took the Canadian expectations, had teachers actually write the lesson plan on how they would actually deliver it in class, but made it accessible to parents, the bridge was instantly created. You now know what's being taught in class. You could do it on your own. If your child ever goes back to school, there's already a familiarity and the teachers have some confidence that what's being taught at home is what they would use in class. And that was a big sort of starting launch for us. And so I think we're so aligned, but as a, I've been lucky enough to build and, and sell two different tech companies, but as far as like education background experience, that's what I'm trying to do now. Surround my folks with myself and folks that are in the space, first time founders, people that can mentor, people that can help us make only the mistakes I'm destined to make and then avoid as many other mistakes from other people as we probably can. So I would love to keep connected and uh, yeah, as a whole space, there's, there's a couple really big trends that are occurring. And if you can solve any of them, you're in good shape. The first one is teacher exhaustion and the fact that they're leaving the industry in droves, which will accentuate an already hurt supply problem or quality problem too. I think it's a little bit of both. So that's a problem. Teachers need productivity tools. They need to save time doing stuff and nothing addresses that. It's one way or another, the teacher exhaustion. I also think the people who have left the industry are an incredible resource. If you could get a teacher who retired or left the industry and loop them into some sort of tutoring or part-time, I just think that's, if you change the model for them, I think the resources are there. So the remote learning with ex-teachers or their tutors or their something, I just think is a really big deal. And in the other area that I'm not as big a fan is the growth of stars, right? So there's a bunch of companies taking well-known experts and making courses out of it, which is fine. That, that's great. And there's no reason that I shouldn't listen to the world's best astronomer versus the guy I took it from 20 years ago, who was a key, not an expert. He was, that was his passion. But uh, I think that's another resource into that. Yeah. Maybe you don't need, I think there's 500,000 middle school math teachers. Maybe you don't need that many, of which I was one, but I also never believed that was anywhere in the top 490,000. So yeah. my view was, how do I not reinvent the wheel yeah. and do things that everybody else has done? I mean, that's the other thing is. I come from another industry and it's really, it's really, at least for me, it was quick. It was quick to identify issues in teaching and things I didn't want to do, even though everybody else was doing it. Right. 
And the people who have only been in teaching, it's really hard. It's been a blind spot for them to find what they're not doing well or where there's leverage. And so a lot of times they just continue to do what they've always done and, or they follow the crowd. And I think teaching has a fair amount of people who are part of that crowd that you don't want to follow. Yeah, no, it's well said, man. Listen, we've taken a lot of your time today. Thank you again. Year One is hosted by Dion Kloppers and Satish Bala and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It is engineered by Bluemex. For more Year One content subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit Bluemex.io to join us on Discord.